0: Turn in the Word of God this morning to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we put a great emphasis on singing that is honoring to the Lord in this place, and I encourage you to sing with all of your might every Lord's day, sing with a heart made glad. It is the regenerate heart that's able to sing, and so often today it you know, worship is an experience that has to be manipulated by men. And I often think, I was just talking to someone about this recently, um, about what it would have been like to sing the hymn that the apostles and our Lord Jesus sang on that occasion, the night that he was betrayed. And there was likely no accompaniment at all. And singing a psalm, probably psalm 118 would be my conviction, what we read last Lord's Day. And they just those men just sat there and they sang, and I'm sure they remembered it for the rest of their lives, as the Lord was about to go out and be betrayed. What sweetness. Worship is in spirit, and we offer ourselves to worship the Lord with all of our might, and to engage in the singing with the saints. But Acts chapter 7 is where we are as we come to the Word, which is also a vital part of our worship. We want to hear from God. And we have been doing a theme over the last number of weeks under the heading, Lives Well Lived. Lives Well Lived. We've dealt with Enoch. We have dealt with Abraham. We are coming now to Moses. And we want to read what we're given in Stephen's sermon, Acts 7, verse 20. Let's read from verse 20 through verse 29. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed And smote the Egyptian, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, your brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Will thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Ending our reading there. This is the Word of God, and what we look at today, we trust, will enrich and bring light to our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, give help in Your Word Enable us to stand in an evil day and honor Jesus Christ above our very lives. We pray that this word today would be instructive for every one of us. And there would be the extension of your kingdom through the declaration of your precious truth. To that end then, Give ears that are able to hear to this congregation, and give to me that promised spirit, and grant power, that which takes the word into the soul and melts the heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning, beloved, to one of the greatest. Of the Old Testament prophets, that of Moses. And assigning him a position of greatness among the prophets is not difficult to do, especially in light of the prophecy, the messianic prophecy that we have in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15, where Moses reveals, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet, capital P, from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, Unto him ye shall hearken. What is amazing there is that this messianic prophecy likens the Messiah to Moses. He'll be like Moses. Moses had some life. (laughs) What a life he lived! What an experience. It was He that was given responsibility to lead the millions of the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was He that was given responsibility to give to them the law of God. It was He that was given the pattern of the tabernacle. It was He that gave the foundation of the very Scriptures that we read. We'll take out the first five books of the Bible, you will not make sense of any of the rest of the Bible at all. Everything, everything, so much of what we have in the Scriptures simply builds upon, draws out that which is already given to us in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. His life falls into three distinct periods of 40 years. You have the first 40 years where... He spends it, by and large, in the house of Pharaoh as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. We've read of that here in Acts chapter 7. The second 40 years are spent in the backside of the desert in the land of Midian, looking after his father-in-law's sheep in a very uh, obscure position during that time. And the final 40 years of his life spent leading the Israelites out of Egypt and to the edge of the promised land. That's his life. And he points us to Christ in a number of ways. In fact, one man, in dealing with the ways in which Moses points to Christ, uh, has, I think, if I remember right, it's about 75 different ways that he could see Moses points to Jesus Christ in certain ways. We, we might give just an overview of some. First, he was born with the Israelites, uh, like the Isra- with the Israelites, rather, living under the tyranny of Gentile authority, just like our Lord Jesus Christ when he was born At his time, they were under Gentile authority. Second, at the time of his birth, a wicked king sought to kill all the male infants, just as it happened in Moses' time, so it happened in our Lord's. Third, our Lord Jesus spent a part of his childhood in Egypt, just as Moses did. Fourth, Moses had an early understanding of his mission in life, discerning 40 years before the time that God was going to use him in this particular way. We have read of it here in what we read in Acts chapter 7. Verse 25, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. He he saw it 40 years before the time, at least he understood it. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ, who at 12 years of age knew that he must be about his father's business. Fifth, though Moses was part of the royal household, he was not ashamed to call the enslaved people his brethren, just like Jesus Christ he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Sixth, Moses functioned as a mediator between God and men, pointing to Christ's ultimate mediatorial role as the only mediator between God and men. Seventh, Moses had to die before Israel could inherit the promised land, just as Christ had to die to secure the inheritance of the people of God. As I say, one man's given over 70 of these that kind of throw us into uh, these similarities, these these ways of illustrating that which would be reflected more perfectly in the life of our Lord Jesus. So I want us to look at Moses again in one sermon. (laughs) In one sermon, which is a difficult task, just as it was last week for Abraham. And I've I've given this overarching overarching kind of thing. Moses, he who was a man of God he who was a man of God. There are a number of people in the Bible that are called men of God. There are a number of them. David's called a man of God. There are others as well. But it's Moses that you find this term used of him in Deuteronomy 33 verse 1, Joshua 14 verse six, Second Chronicles 30 verse 16, Ezra 3 verse 2, and then, of course, the title to the oldest psalm in our entire book of Psalms, Psalm 90, where it's given the title, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So I think it is a right title that generally gives us an insight into how this man lived, and I trust it's a blessing as we reflect upon his life this morning. So I want you to follow in the Word, all right? The Word is important. The Scriptures give us life we want to be students of the Word as we consider it together. First of all, the truths he grasped. The truths he grasped. After spending 40 years in the privileged environment of the Egyptian royal household, Moses is brought to this kind of critical point in his life. He's not in control of this. and This so often is the case with us. We are not in control of these critical junctures in our lives. We don't dictate when we're going to meet these critical points. Now, sometimes we are. We might say marriage is a critical juncture of life, and in some ways we're we're involved in that. I don't think many of us here are are doing arranged marriages these days in America. can't imagine it happens too often. But therefore, we're somewhat involved. But there are many things, many things that occur in our lives, these, these kind of moments in our existence that we could never have anticipated, and yet they are crucial for the direction of our future existence. Turn for a moment to Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11. We turn to this familiar chapter. Moses is mentioned here. So like I say, he's had a privileged upbringing, aside from those, from those fearful early months in which he wouldn't even have been aware of what was going on. Hebrews 11 verse 24 tells us, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. I want us to note a few things here that are mentioned, that summarizing again the life of Moses. First, God may call men away from their worldly position. Moses, this is the first truth he grasped here, that God may call men away from their worldly position position. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refuses. He says no to it. He says no. He makes a clear decision. He is in Egypt in a privileged household and makes a decision to refuse to be a part of what he is a part of. Now, why? Why did he have an issue with Pharaoh's daughter and how she had had rescued him and raised him? I mean, I imagine he lived with continual gratitude as to how she had preserved him and kept him alive and looked after him. But he finds himself in Egypt, and Egypt always is depicting for us the ungodly world, that the Christian has no part of. Well, you say, well, well, didn't God bring them into Egypt? Yes, He did. He brought them into Egypt. But in this instance, Moses is brought to a point, and we'll look at it in just a moment as to why, but he is, he is recognizing that he can have no part in this system. I think what is going on here is a recognition that he is being prepared for Something something that he can't enter into. He is being prepped for position. Now, I don't know whether it was the throne. I don't know if that would have been even uh, an option. I know he's in the household, the royal household. He's considered to be a son of Pharaoh's daughter, and there there are some that certainly take that, that maybe there was a path to the throne here, and he is being prepared for that. But at the very least, in all likelihood, here is a man that is being prepared for position. Position. A position that would give to him the riches, the treasures, verse 26, the treasures in Egypt. He'd have access to untold wealth and power. And he makes a decision not to be involved. Now, the immediate response to that would be, well, didn't God use Joseph? I mean, he was given position. He was basically second in command in Egypt. Why then would Moses have a problem with such favor, well, it's not the position that's the problem, so much as it's discerning God's purpose. For Joseph, his position fulfilled the purposes of God. His 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 family are in are in famine. He, he's already had a dream that indicates greatness. All right, just keep that in mind. At seventeen years of age, he's had a, He has indication of unusual position that will place him over his brothers and even over his parents. So when it comes to pass, I imagine that Joseph is connecting the dots. This is God's purpose. Some 13 years or more have have passed, and God is bringing this to pass. Of course, he realizes it was to save much people alive, especially those of his own family. And I think the same is going on with Moses. Moses has to determine what God is doing. And Moses is aware of something because he would later write of it. As he would sit down and chronicle the beginnings of the world and the creation and everything else, He comes to Genesis 15 in the middle of the life of Abraham, and he is able to record, he is aware of the fact that Abraham was told by God that while there was this promise of the land for his posterity, there would be a period of about four centuries in which they would be enslaved. They would would find themselves in another land. And Moses is aware of this because he writes of it. He tells us about it. We're aware of it because Moses was aware of it. And he records it. And so as he's writing about that, as, he, as he's aware of that, rather, I should say, before he ever writes about it, as he is growing up and he is becoming aware of what God's purpose is, I, I, I see it as him being aware now that, that this is not God's purpose for us to stay in Egypt. And it was not God's purpose then for me to take this position. How do you determine God's purpose for you? How? It is by the Word of God. It is by the Word of God. Christian, you must always turn to the Word of God if you are to know God's purpose for you. When I was just converted, 19 years of age, I knew little or nothing, really. I had not, my mom had been converted, what, six months before me, maybe seven months. So she didn't really know much either. And everything's new. There was one thing I knew, there was one thing I was aware of, one thing that I was driven by, and that was a hunger, a hunger for Christ, a hunger for us people, a hunger to serve. And in my work at the time, I was working for the largest supermarket company in the United Kingdom, Tesco. And Tesco put a heavy emphasis on internal training. They want their management to come internally rather than externally. And so they had developed this, this, this whole program of management within the company. And I was approached. Would you be interested in, in the, the management training program? And I had said, yes. Well, why not? I mean, that's, why wouldn't you? So I proceeded to engage in those classes. And, and I'm going through them. And at some point then, I'm converted. I'm converted while I'm, I'm there working for this company. And... I don't know how long passed, but at some point I I was in conversation with my line manager, and he talked about... Now, now we were not open on the Lord's Day at that time. It is now. But at that time, that that particular store was not open on the Lord's Day. Quite amazing. You may think, how old are you? (laughs) We'll not go there. I remember him talking about even the obligations he had on the Lord's Day, even though the store wasn't open. And it hit me. Do I want that? Do I want that? Do I want to have obligations on the Lord's Day? And I made a decision right there. No, I don't want it. I I don't want that. Now, there, there are reasons why one should be engaged in gainful employment on the Lord's Day. There are acts of necessity and mercy. There are occupations that, by their nature, they cannot, it can't just stop functioning for one day of the week. That exists. But that was not the case. Managing a supermarket that had no real need to be open on the Lord's Day or even have anything going on on the Lord's Day. So as this young, zealous Christian that where my only concern was, was this heart for Christ, I didn't want anything, anything to, to come in between what God was doing in my life. I wanted to protect it. I wanted to shield it from any incoming force that would somehow be to the detriment of my soul. So I walked away from it, left it, and God eventually moved me into another job. In another for another company. We have decisions to make in relation to position at times. Moses, when he came to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused it. He said no. Don't want it, not interested. And I put it to, you because he, he understood this was not fulfilling God's purpose for his life. Secondly, God may call men away from their worldly pleasures. God may call men away from their worldly pleasures. This is part of these these basic truths that, that Moses grasped. Verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, not all pleasure is sinful. And certainly there would have been things that he would have enjoyed in this position that would have not been sinful. Like, think of the meals that he would have had put before him. Not to suggest that he would have been gluttonous all the time, but but what was available to him was the best. There's nothing wrong with having access to the best in terms of food and so on. But there were other things as well that were sinful. And he rejects, he chooses to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Quite remarkable. He is determining that this path that God is calling me to is one of affliction and suffering. Now, if he goes... If you go back and you read Genesis 15, which we'll not do because I don't have time this morning, God talks about where they're going being like a furnace of affliction. And so they're going into a land that will afflict them. And they were going through that affliction, but Moses wasn't. Not personally. He is making his personal decision to side with, come alongside those that are in affliction and bear that affliction with them. There are worldly pleasures that are perfectly fine, but there are some that have no place in our lives. And there's so much today, there's so much today in terms of the options of what we can do with our free time. I mean, did any generation have The number of things available at short notice to do with their free time, as we have today. No other generation has known what we have known. They, they, They just have not lived through this experience of well, you know, you have hundreds of channels and you have you have online things. You can look at all these websites, all these. I mean, you didn't have for for years. You didn't have a newspaper. And then you had a newspaper and you had one paper that you might read and so you, know, you could get through it maybe in 15 minutes. That was it. That was it. Now you could, you could literally spend every second of your waking day reading about what's happening in the world. And still not really know what's happening in the world, I might add. Your, your choices, when you come to free time, your choices of what you can do are so expansive that we are having to battle with something that is, in a nuanced way, different than in previous generations. We are not to simply waste away our lives with that which we enjoy, especially if it's sinful. Better we choose to suffer affliction with the people of God than do that. Also, what else does Moses learn here? Another truth he grasps is that God may call men away from their worldly prosperity. He may call men away from their worldly prosperity. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now, no right-thinking Christian would dispute the fact that the joys of Christ exceed the joys of the world. All right, I think we're all in agreement there. The joys of Christ exceed the joys of the world. Even if we don't feel it at times, we would all assent to it. You would say, the joy of Christ is greater than the joy of the world. So there we're in agreement, I think. But that's not what Moses learned. I know that he learned that. But that's not what it says. He esteemed not the joy of Christ, the reproach of Christ. Bearing reproach for Christ is better than the riches of Egypt. He had gone far beyond the kind of thought that Christ brings more joy than the world brings. He had gone to a point that even in the the difficulties of faithfulness to Christ, that is better. Now, now, how do you come to that determination? How? Because what Moses is talking about here is not pleasant to the flesh. It's not. There's nothing about this that's pleasant. You know, and you know, many, many of the ministries today, especially to... Uh, addicts and down-and-outs and and those that have great needs and are extremely vulnerable in our community. Many of them actually are are kind of platformed in language that, you know, the joy that Christ gives is better than the high that any drug can give, and and language like that, things of that nature. And that's true. Again, we wouldn't, wouldn't disagree there. But but what happens when it gets really tough for these people? And no one tells them what Moses had to learn. That the reproach is better than what the world has to offer. So many of them walk away. They're, they're, they're brought and they're brought something that Jesus Christ seldom did. He did not bring people to, to weigh up that my joy is better than the joy the world gives. He had language that, that, you know, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And there's language that could be seemingly insinuating the better life of the Christian in that way. But largely, largely, that's not what he said. He said, you want to be my disciple? You have to die. Die. It's not about you anymore. You have to die. You have to take up your cross daily and follow me. Taking up a cross, that imagery is suffering. That's what, you're, that's what you're taking up. So Christ was clear. The Christ was clear. And Moses learns this. He learns that taking the cross is better than all the joy. Now, that doesn't go down very well in many of the outreaches to the addicts and everything, because how do you sell that? How do you sell, hey, what we're offering actually is great suffering, and, and, you know, if you, if you want joy, stick with your highs. Stick with your, your drug addic- addictions and whatever else. You can't sell that. So you have, to, you have to make the message of Jesus about being a superior joy to the, that. And I get it. Like, there's a certain level where it's true. But, but, <laughs> it's what I'm telling you. The affliction, the suffering of Christ, the reproach of Christ, the bearing of the cross is better Than all that Egypt can offer. And some people don't learn that. They don't, well, they never even hear about it. A.W. Pink, he says here the decision that he, that's Moses, made was not a reluctant and forced one, but ready and joyous. He was not merely, it was not merely he perceived that identifying himself with the Hebrews was a bounden duty, and therefore he must, quote-unquote, make the best of a bad job and put up with the hardships such a course entailed, but that he gladly preferred the same, Christ meaning infinitely more to him than everything which was to be found in Egypt. And that is such a material point. What we communicate to men when we say, His joy is better than what the world offers. Is about the benefits of Jesus Christ. We're not pointing to him. We're pointing to the benefits. And we're the benefactors. We're the ones that. Oh, is that so? That comes to me. So, so I get this joy if I if I just come to Jesus. And that is not that is not the gospel. What Moses discovered is that Christ, Christ with all that that entails, with all that ma- that might mean, just to be with Christ, to suffer with Him, to be reproached for Him, to, to go through whatever agony is necessary, but I have Christ. It's Christ. I have Him. Him. He is that pearl of great price. He is, the, he is everything. I was made for Him. Him. I and mean, when you realize that, that's, that's what Moses came to realize. That you, you can give me the whole world, but I, I want Christ and say goodbye to all of that. I'm not interested. Be careful what you're promising men. Be careful how you preach to men. Because if you're leading them... To a decision where they pray a prayer on the street or by the sidewalk when they're down and out and they're at the the worst point in their life and their wife's walked out of them and their children wants not nothing to do with them. And you can come and say, Here, here, Christ, Christ is the great reconciler, he can fix all those problems. And they say, What do they have to do? Sign up here. Just pray this prayer. Who doesn't? Who, who will not? At rock bottom, sign up for that. So you have thousands and millions walking hell because that's where they are, and that's what's promised to them. But Jesus was very clear. It's me. And with me comes, yes, your father. Turn against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother. You may lose everything. I offer me the byproducts of that in terms of your material existence and how how your life goes on after that. Any man may know. <laughs> you have no idea. Only God knows. Moses obviously had a clear understanding of, of Messiah, didn't he? Esteeming the reproach of Christ. How could he do that if he was not looking to the Messiah? So he has, he has grappled with all the contents of the book of Genesis and he has understood that there is this Messiah that is promised and he esteems the value of that promised seed more than everything else the world has to offer. Do you? What's your Christianity? Are you, are you a Christian because of what you get out of it? Purely in terms of maybe he might fix all my problems. Oh, I, I I long for the day that we come into this place and every heart is knit. And I think we do enjoy a measure of it. We do but oh for even more, that we all gather in this place and our burdens are still there and hardships don't go away. And the preacher doesn't get up and promise you that just just come out on Sunday and all your burdens will just suddenly dissipate and evaporate, they'll not be there any longer. I can't promise that. I can't. But here's what I can promise you. Come and sit under the sound preaching of the word, and what I will endeavor by the help of the Spirit to do is to train your heart and your soul. Yes, by the Spirit, train you to realize if I have Jesus, Jesus only, I possess a cluster rare. I have Him. I am exceedingly blessed. And this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is just a passing affliction. You know, whenever I, I'm going to get personal here, I think it's came to mind, just so you understand. Moses is doing the will of God, and that's what matters, whatever that means. When your previous minister took a call to another congregation and returned to Northern Ireland, a man I highly esteem, And I began to wrestle about what what that might mean. You know, he had talked to me as he had talked to other ministers. I'm I'm going, and you may be up for consideration. There were other men, no doubt, had a similar conversation. And I began to pray. And the only person who knew about it that I had talked to was, was my wife. Eventually I Shared it with her and we prayed. The first person to come up to me, and this was This is just a I don't know, four months later or something. I mean nothing. There was, there was nothing. All I, all I was doing was praying, Your will be done, Lord. And and this person randomly, not randomly, our paths crossed. And they have a history here. They've been here. They know this congregation well. They don't come here anymore. They live in a completely other, different part of the country. And uh, <laughs> they approached me and said something to the effect about whether I would be coming here. I, listen, I can't talk about it. I have no idea. This is too early. My advice to you, this is what they said. My advice to you is, do not. Verbatim. It will chew you up and spit you out. That's what they said. A few other months pass, and now it's a little more, you know, other manner. It's getting closer to the time of, of voting. And a minister, a senior minister, said to me, you know, there have been problems down there. You might want to inquire and do a little investigation as to the problems before you even think about going there. I thought to myself, did I do that? What's... What's the benefit there? What's the benefit there? Let's say I do an inquiry, and I realize here's a congregation that's gone through a tough time, and they're going through a hard time. Now, if I, if I determine that that was the case, I determine they've gone through this tough time, do I really want to go there? Now, now ministry has become about my comforts. It's about me. I'm going to make a decision based upon my ability to perceive my own level of comfort. On the flip side, if I was to do an inquiry and to find out all the massive benefits about com- people are wonderful. They, you know, they look after you well materially. There's all these, all, these. and I was to find all that out first ahead of time. I might think, well, now again, I'm making the decision based upon my evaluation about what's good for me. It didn't matter what way I looked at it. it it didn't make sense to make such an inquiry. And I said, Lord, if, if, that, if, if, I, if I'm going there and I'm going to suffering, if I'm going from somewhere where, you know, you have suffering, but if I'm going to more suffering, if I'm going to more hardship, then so be it, Lord. So be it. I will choose to suffer affliction with the people of God that I'm called to serve. done anything else that may be on the table. I believe, I believe it far more than most of you are aware, because I don't, I'm not a vision caster, right? I don't go up and cast a vision, right? Because, <laughs> The vanity of it. But I absolutely believe that the Lord will bless this work. And I think we have known just tiny little indications of it. As Doctor Karen used to always say, "The best is yet to be." All that Egypt could offer could not compare to Moses standing on the brink of the Promised Land and saying to all those that he helped, "Go in." So the world will come, and Moses had to learn this, will come and try to draw you away. Worldly position, worldly pleasures, prosperity, all these things, and you, you need to see that Christ, Christ is better than all of that. Secondly, the trial he endured. In Acts 7, it gives to us the trial, and I'm not going to read the verses that we've already read, but this portion of Stephen's sermon gives to us Up to his 40th year, he's full of zeal, he's full of ability, he is sensing his preparation for a great work of God. God has brought him through the most advanced education system known at that time. And he needed that. Moses needed that education. Clearly he did. This is why he is placed in this position. He needed that preparation. He needed to grow up in that household. He needed it in, in the sense that God's, God uses means. And so he needed that education, that equipping. However, at 40 years of age, he believed that that equipping of him was all that he needed. That is where he made the fatal mistake so, as we've read again, verse 25, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them. But they understood not. He's ready. They're not. But neither is it God's time. And what he needed to learn was that he needed an education in addition to what Egypt could teach him. And that God was going to teach him in the backside of the desert. 40 years of emptiness and of feeling his weakness and his inability, God broke him. And I just add, in relation to the application of that, you get these two divergent um, views in terms of ministry. God makes the man he doesn't need education except the education that God gives him. You need seminary, you need your master's, you need your, you need your MDiv, you need all of that before you can conduct God's work. And so what happens is, what happens is, there's this certain kind of extremities. Someone thinks that their MDiv makes them able to do the work of God. And it doesn't. And the other thinks that they can do it without the education. But both of them, both of them, and I say this as lovingly as possible, both of them are rooted in pride. Of course you need to be educated. Of course you need to be prepared mentally. Moses needed this. At the same time, he couldn't depend on it. So God takes him out and he gives him 80 years of training. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the middle of nowhere. What, what an experience, what a humbling experience. First 29, he fled, he fled into the land of Midian, into the middle of nowhere. God's not in a hurry, Moses can't be in a hurry either. Which brings us then thirdly to the task he embraced. So 40 years of obscurity away from worldly temptations, away from any sense of prestige, away from people filling his head with a sense of grandeur, away from servants that serve him, that elevate that sense of his position. He is humbled, greatly humbled. And so when God finally calls to him, here's the work I'm calling you to, Moses, he he is in a position where you actually read a conflict, because if you just know the Moses that Expresses himself in his confrontation with God, you say, Here's a man that can barely speak. Here's a man who's, who, who really is not up to the task at all. But, but that's not the case. He has learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. He is mighty. He is the Paul of his day. He is so broken, he has no confidence in his abilities. And so Numbers 13 verse 3 tells us that well-known passage about Moses. The man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Is it, is it, is it coincidence that the meekest man on the earth gets the, 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 the most challenging job that God could give to a man? No, no. So, here's a man who's 40 in the the heart of his strength and sense of ability, and God's going to break him over 40 years. (laughs) He feels himself to be less than nothing. At that point, he can be trusted to lead. So he does. And what does he teach? What did he teach the Israelites? This task that he was given to lead them out was more than just leading them out of Egypt and into the promised land. There are a number of things he teaches and we'll close with these these thoughts. First, he taught that redemption is by blood. Redemption is by blood. The final plague, Moses leading the way, dealing face to face with Pharaoh, let my people go, he would not. The final plague comes to destroy the firstborn and Moses expresses before under God, how the people can get deliverance, and it is by the, the shedding of blood, that blood placed upon the doorposts and the lintel of their homes, and by that there is salvation. It was, and it was pointing forward, pointing to 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover. And so he, he is educating the people in this, 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 this typology, this understanding that deliverance is by the shed blood. And so he, that statement is made by God in Exodus 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is under Moses' time of leading the people, of instructing them, the importance of blood atonement. This is always at the heart of any God ministry. When God calls a man to do something, and even his own people in their regular endeavors in life, we, we must keep the sacrifice of Christ central in everything we say and do. The cross always central. And this is what Moses did. He taught them redemption is by blood. Also, that provision is in Christ. Provision is in Christ. They come out of Egypt and now they're in the middle of the wilderness and they lack provision. And so what, what under Moses, what are they taught? They're taught about the manna. And they're taught about the water out of the rock, depicting Christ, depicting his provision. That Christ is a spiritual bread and he is the spiritual water that will satisfy, truly satisfy. And you don't, we're not just reading that into Moses' life. That's what comes out then in the New Testament when in John 6, you have him feeding, having fed the 5,000. They're all in the wilderness at that occasion. He feds bread, as it were, from nothing, they are all fed and satisfied. And John gives us then the next day how he, how he kind of launches into a message that the people weren't understanding. That, that as, as Moses gave you bread in the wilderness, so I am the bread of God sent down from heaven. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. I'm not here to give you your natural needs every day. I was illustrating in one day. I was illustrating in one moment what you need for your souls. And God provides the bread of God. It is me, his son. In the very next chapter, John chapter 7, he stands on that great day of the feast and he says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Provision is in Christ. Moses taught that. The rock followed them in the wilderness. Christ is that rock we are told by Paul. Thirdly, he taught that obedience follows salvation. Obedience follows salvation. The danger, the danger always is that we think we can work for our own salvation. That we, by our renovation of our lives and obedience to His Word can gain favor before God and it's a, the lie of lies. And God brings us people out and the first lesson, one of the first lessons they get is... Exodus 19, that he bore them on eagles' wings and brought them out. And he gives them then the Decalogue. And before he gives the commands, I am the Lord thy God. And he's so, calling them to worship the, him as the only God. He says, I am the Lord thy God that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Ye shall not have any other gods before me. Before they get to the command, they're reminded of redemption. The introduction to the law is gracious. The context of the commands are given in a context of grace. I brought you out. I delivered you. You did nothing. I saved you. Now here's my word. Obedience follows salvation. If you're trying to obey God this morning before having given your heart and life to Christ, before having confessed your sins, and your recognition that you cannot save yourself, you're on the wrong path. This is not the gospel. Moses taught the people that God will deliver you savingly. Now you obey as a saved people. Fourthly, to teach that unbelief results in death. Unbelief results in death. There's an interesting little insight into their meanderings through the wilderness given in Numbers chapter 14. And God was calling them to believe Him. Just believe me. Just trust me. And they struggled to do that. And in Numbers 14, you may wish to turn there because you may not be familiar with it. But Numbers 14 verse 22 The Lord speaks here. Through Moses, the people are taught, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Now what is fascinating is, well, there are a number of things here, but I can't deal with it all. He delivered them and He is calling them to live a life of faith. Circumcised hearts, circumcised ears, living in faith, trusting Him. And they keep Being found guilty of the sin of all sins. Unbelief. It is the sin of all sins. Worse than any other sin you can imagine. Preacher, there are a lot of very awful things go on in the world. There's some terrible things, and I've never done those things. There are some terrible things that go on. But the most wretched sin of all is refusal to believe God. And the Lord says that they had tempted Him ten times. Ten times of their unbelief. You can go back through the history and you can note it. Ten times. Ten times unbelief rises up in the congregation of Israel. K- keep that in mind, those of you who think there's not going to be a judgment day, that God's not keeping score, as it were. <laughs> Ten times. Ten times. I'm counting them. I'm counting them. Every single one, every sing- every time you rise up in unbelief, it is noted. It's noted. And so as Egypt had to be destroyed and their firstborn were taken out by the 10th plague, in this case, God mercifully spares the firstborn and he deals the judgment on the older generation. Unbelief results in death. Moses had to teach them that before they could enter the promised land. There are so many other things we could focus on. My time is gone. We could focus on his, his experiences with God at the burning bush, 40 days and 40 nights on the mountaintop, his repeated intercessions for the people, his, his prayer life, his heartache, his, his coming to a point of wanting to give up, just let me die. But the key, the key is that this was a life well lived. That's the heart, isn't it? A life well lived. It was a life well lived because here was a man that treasured Christ and his people above everything. It wasn't a nomad Christian who lives out there and says, I'm a Christian, has no interaction with the people of God, offers no support to the people of God, receives no support from the people of God, just meanders through life without any real service. Yes, they're going to get to heaven. They're going to discover something. They are absolutely without anything that they have done for Christ because if you want to serve Christ, he left his body here on the earth to serve. If you don't serve that body, you're not serving. Moses loved Christ he loved his body. He loved the people, even though they brought him so much heartache at times. And he was a man of God. He was described as that for good reason. Not perfect, but ever so Christ-like in the service that he offered. May the Lord help us. May he help us to have lives well lived. And especially in those junctures, and I, I say this, some of you, I think some of you already may be fearing the possibility of what what you're going to have to deal with in coming days relating to your job. I don't have a definitive answer. Vaccines are a matter of conscience. But you need to make your decision as before. So we're saying with the young people on Friday night, Coram Deo, before the face of God. If that means reproach, if that means forsaking the treasures, according to your conscience, so live before God. The Lord will be with you. Let's pray. If you need counsel or prayer this morning, please don't hesitate to let me know. I'll be at the door on the seminary side of our building. Some of the Lord's people are going through challenging times, and maybe you are too. If you want to be a man of God, a woman of God, it's going to, at times, call you to very difficult decisions that will require walking away, sometimes from work, sometimes from position, sometimes even from family. But live before the living God, for no man has left houses and lands and family for my sake and has not then, in return, been rewarded far more abundantly in due time. Lord, we pray, help us to fear thee, our God. And to treasure Jesus Christ, your Son, above every love of life. May he truly be the love of all loves to every professing Christian. And to those here this morning without Jesus Christ and lost and on a pathway to damnation and judgment, dear God in heaven, have mercy on them. They're at a juncture as well. They have to determine whether they're willing to choose Christ over everything else. Have mercy, we pray. Be with us through the afternoon hours and bring us back here tonight to sing praises to Thee, our God. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Your people now and evermore. Amen.